Thank you, John. Uh, if you've got a Bible, can you open it to page 871 to Ezekiel chapter 40? 871. Uh, we've not had a New Testament reading tonight because we're going to uh, cover eight chapters of Ezekiel. We're not going to read it all. I'm just going to read a selected few sections, and hopefully you'll be able to get the gist of what's happening. It's a very, very long section. This is the last vision in Ezekiel. Ezekiel has four big visions in it, and this is the last vision. This is how the book closes, and it takes up a whopping eight chapters. Um, But turn to chapter 40, and you're going to have to work hard with me tonight, but I promise you it will be worth it. Ezekiel chapter 40. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, and the 14th year after the fall of the city of Jerusalem, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was on me, and he took me there. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. He took me there, and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. The man said to me, Son of man, look carefully and listen closely and pay attention to everything I am going to show you, for that is why you have been brought here. Tell the people of Israel everything you see. What follows in the next few chapters of Ezekiel is Ezekiel is taken on a tour around a new temple and he's given very detailed measurements of all the different parts of this temple. And turn forward with me to chapter 43. This is after he's had his tour with this angelic figure. Chapter 43, verse 1, Then the man brought me to the gate facing east of the temple and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he he came to destroy the city, and, and like the visions I had seen by the river Kibar, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The people of Israel will never again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings at their death. When they placed their thresholds next to my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts with only a wall between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices, so I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings, and I will live among them forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider its perfection. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits, and its entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. This is the law of the temple. All the surrounding area on top of the mountain will be most holy. Such is the law of the temple. 
And what follows in the, the next few chapters is Ezekiel's given a description of this kind of perfected temple worship and how worship was to be conducted in this, this new temple. And turn forward to chapter 47. After these instructions, verse 1, the man brought me back to the entrance to the temple. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits, and then led me through the water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee-deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to En Engalim. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. And then Ezekiel is taken by this uh, tour guide and kind of given a vision of the whole new land of Israel. And he's um, given a description of all the different parts of the land that will be allotted to the different tribes of Israel. And this is how it finishes. Turn to chapter 48, verse 30. Ezekiel's brought back to this great city, And this is what it says, chapter 48, verse 30. These will be the exits of the city, beginning on the north side, which is 4,500 cubits long. The gates of the city will be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates on the north side will be the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, and the gate of Levi. On the east side, which is 4,500 cubits long, will be three gates, the gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. On the south side, which measures 4,500 cubits, will be three gates, the gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, and the gate of Zebulun. On the west side, which is 4,500 cubits long, will be three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, and the gate of Naphtali. The distance all around will be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. Well, let's pray for God's help as we look at this huge but important passage of Scripture. Father, just help us tonight to understand what your word is saying. Father, if there's anything I say that's not in accordance with the truth of your word, I pray that people would forget it. 
but may the truth of your word be clear tonight. Holy Spirit, would you bring to bear upon us, on your church, the great realities of Ezekiel's vision and what it means. And may we tonight reflect upon and marvel upon the greatness of being in your presence, O Lord. And may we see what it is that Jesus died to give us. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Well, the whole notion of utopia is not something that's alien to us. Uh, we have recognized, I guess, for a long time that this world is broken and, and we want to try and make it better, don't we? Uh, many think that we can work towards perfection. We think that if we have a certain political system in place or if we can adopt a certain uh, set of values or if we can maybe eradicate a kind of backwards way of thinking, then we will be able to progress as a society uh, into something better, maybe something even perfect in the future. We strive for utopia. But if history teaches us anything, it teaches us how ridiculous a notion, the notion of utopia is. We cannot be in a perfect world for, well, I guess for one big reason. We are the problem. Humanity is what is wrong with this world. Um, and an excellent essay that I read last summer, and I think it's written by a non-Christian, is an essay by William Golden, the author of Lord of the Flies, entitled On Fables. And in that essay, uh, Golden talks about why he wrote the book Lord of the Flies, which if you haven't read it, it's about a group of school children that try to murder each other on a desert island. And he, he said that he wrote it because he was someone who once believed in the, the progressiveness of society. He was someone who, as he says in his own words, believed in the perfectibility of man, that we are essentially good creatures that could become perfect. But then something happened which totally ruined that perception. The Second World War. Golden says that it was there he saw not savages from foreign nations, but doctors and politicians and the well-educated from very advanced nations doing some of the most horrific things imaginable. In fact, he says this, that anyone who moved through the years of the war without understanding that man will produce evil as a bee produces honey must have been blind or wrong in the head. See, his assessment is right, that there is this ability within human beings to produce evil that's like a bee producing honey. But the Bible itself would go uh, further in explaining why it is that we are like that. We are flawed, we are immoral, because ultimately the root problem is that we are disconnected from God, our Creator, by our sin. We give no thought to him, we ignore him, we either consciously or subconsciously rebel against him, and we exalt ourselves and live for ourselves. And that's the root of what is wrong and, and broken with this world. And therefore, this world is not just broken, it's actually under judgment. And so trying to create this perfect society is like trying to build a sandcastle with this great tsunami on the horizon. We need our relationship with God to be fixed. 
And that's what the storyline of the Bible is about. He is the one that we are made for. St. Augustine got it right when he said that our souls will be forever restless until they find our rest in God. And this final vision that Ezekiel sees is all about that. About God's plan to live with his people in perfection, in harmony. Now, if you're joining us tonight, this is some passage to be joining us on, um, but just give you a bit of context. We've been saying Ezekiel was a prophet. He spoke around 600 years before Jesus. Uh, In this time, God's people were the nation of Israel. They were special. They were unique. And one of the things that made them truly unique and, and stand out against all the other nations of the world was that in their capital city of Jerusalem, they had the temple. And the temple was was the connecting point between God and man at that time. It was the, 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 the place where God's glory was. It was where heaven met earth. But in the time of Ezekiel, Israel is in a crisis because the Israelites had desecrated God's temple by worshiping other gods. They had disobeyed God's law. In fact, earlier on in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is given another tour around the actual temple of his time, and he sees the the horrible things that the Israelites did there in God's temple. And so, as an act of judgment, God decides to, to leave. He walks out of his temple. His glory leaves his people, and he sends the mighty Babylonian empire to destroy Jerusalem and to raise the temple to the ground. And through Ezekiel, God has been warning his people, don't put your trust on that old temple. Don't look back to that old way. Look forward to this new thing that I am doing. And what we've been seeing in in chapters 34 to um, 48 of Ezekiel are these amazing messages of hope and restoration. Um, You can see I've got kind of an outline of what's going on there, how God is going to fix everything that was lost through the exile of Israel. He's going to restore the monarchy. He's going to restore the land. He's going to make a new covenant. He's going to restore his people. He's going to make a new nation and give them a victory that is unheard of. And then we get to this last and final promise in this great vision of Ezekiel 40 to 48, which is all about God restoring everything that the temple stood for. God is going to come back and he's going to live with his people. You see, this is the question that's always been addressed in Ezekiel. Will God be with his people? And it's in this vision we see that the answer is yes. That amazing city at the very end, the last words of this book, the Lord is there. So here's how I want to look at this vision. Um, I, I want to see, first of all, what did this vision mean for the original hearers? Secondly, what does it mean for the church of Jesus today? And then thirdly, how does it point forward to the very end of time? I think that's a helpful way to look at Old Testament prophecies because they're always pointing forward. What did it mean for the original hearers? What does it mean for the New Testament church? And what does it mean will happen at the end of time? So firstly then, we see Ezekiel's vision of a perfect temple. Look back at chapter 40 in verse 1 to 2. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, and the 14th year after the fall of the city. So 14 years after Jerusalem was destroyed. 
On that very day, the hand of the Lord was on me and he took me there. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. This is how the vision begins. Ezekiel is taken to a city on top of a very, very high mountain. And he's about to be taken into the city to see this temple. Now, there's a very important starting point as we look at this. We must remember that this is a vision. Like all the visions in Ezekiel, they are symbolic. Uh, it's, it's not trying to convey a literal reality. Um, and I have to say that because there are many Christians who have been taught that there is going to be this literal temple built in Israel that will bring in uh, the return of Jesus. And I don't think that that is what this passage is about. In fact, I can say it confidently because that's not how the original hearers interpreted this, and nor is it how the New Testament picks up on this vision. It's a stylized representation of reality, like all the other visions in Ezekiel. That's why there's stuff in it that doesn't make sense, like water that flows uphill in chapter 47. And so Ezekiel is brought to this city and he's taken to this temple and he's given this guided tour around the temple in which the the guide in chapters 40 to 42 gives him very detailed measurements. So here's the question. Why, if it is symbolic, do we have a detailed description of all the measurements of this temple? Why? I think we need to remember who our original audience is here. You see, you have to understand that when God came to dwell with Israel, it was groundbreaking. And it happened back in the book of Exodus when he came into a structure, his glory moved into a structure called the tabernacle. And at the end of the book of Exodus, there's this long, detailed description of the measurements and how this tabernacle was to be built. And then when the Israelites settled into Jerusalem and God's glory moved from the tabernacle to the temple, in 1 Kings 6, you get again a long, detailed description of the measurements that were used in constructing the temple. You see, whenever God described his dwelling with his people, it was through very detailed descriptions of a building. And so when Ezekiel describes these measurements to his original hearers off in exile with no temple, they would have understood that Ezekiel's describing to them one very important fact. God is coming to stay. God's going to come back to them as they sit in their shantytown by uh, the rivers of, the, of Babylon with nothing, Ezekiel's describing to them that using language that they are familiar with, that God is, is coming back. His presence is going to come back. His, his presence will be there with them. But there's something different about this temple. You see, unlike those previous passages in the Old Testament, this is not something they're told to build which, by the way, is why they never did try and build it when they went back to Israel. This is something that God's built already. This this is a a kind of heavenly temple built by God. And Ezekiel himself is just walking around it. So this is not a vision of a literal place that God, a literal temple that God wants his people to make, but a very detailed metaphor to show the exiles one thing— God's going to come back. God's going to come in his glory. God's going to live with them. 
early on in it's a complement to a vision that's seen earlier on in Ezekiel in chapters 8 through 11, where God's glory leaves that temple in Jerusalem. But if we flip forward to chapter 43, what do we see happen in this new heavenly temple? The glory returns. And it seems that this time it's permanent. This time it's infinitely more glorious. And so those struggling group of exiles are not being shown simply a vision of a building, but a vision of the fact that God's going to live with them in all his glory. And that is amazing news for three big reasons. Firstly, it means that their relationship with God is going to be fixed. When God comes back to his sinful, rebellious people, he is going to fix them by removing all their sin, all that is wrong with them, so that they can perfectly enjoy him. Look at chapter 43, verse 6. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The people of Israel will never again defile my holy name. Neither they nor their kings by their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings at their death. When they place their threshold next to my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts with only a wall between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings, and I will live among them forever. All the the wicked things that we saw Israel do at this time, as we've been studying Ezekiel, will be gone forever. That language of prostitution reminds us of, of that shocking parable in Ezekiel 16 where God describes their sin like an adulterous wife and, and God said it's going to be put away because they're going to live with him in harmony. The, the relationship will be fixed. Their sin will be dealt with. And do you know that's what a tem- a, the temple symbolized for an ancient Israelite as they walked to the temple and they would take an animal with them to be sacrificed. And they would watch as that animal was sacrificed symbolically in their place. And they would see that their sin needs to be punished so that they can have access to God. Chapters 43 verse 13 through to 46 describe that perfected temple worship. Perfected sacrificial system. A stark contrast to what Ezekiel saw earlier in this book. And again, Ezekiel's using language his original hearers would understand. They would listen to this and they would know that God's going to restore them to this perfect relationship with him. Secondly, we see that when God lives with his people, there is an abundance of life. Flip forward to what Ezekiel sees in chapter 47. This is really cool. Chapter 47 after he's given this tour of the temple, after he sees the new worship laws and regulations, um, he comes back to the temple and he sees a little tiny trickle of water coming out from the throne room of God. And then he follows it. It's just trickling out in verse 2, but as he follows this river, do you notice in verse 3 to 6, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper until he he can't go in it anymore because it's just this mighty rushing river. 
And on the banks of this river, what are there? There's a great number of trees. It's, it's the source of life. In fact, it's so life-giving. It's so abundant in life that it makes, verse 8, the salt water fresh. The most inhospitable place on earth, the Dead Sea, becomes like a fresh spring. Because what flows from the temple of God is the abundance of life. And not even death can stop it. Do you see what this is? It comes from God's presence. Look at verse 12 of chapter 47. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. And you know, I think as Ezekiel spoke to those exiles sitting by the banks of the Kibar River, in their minds, they would have been transported back to what they read in Genesis about the Garden of Eden, that time when God did live with humanity, when there was an abundance of life and goodness. To live with God is to experience abundant life, not just in ourselves, but in all creation. It all just comes from him. And finally, we see that God's presence brings with it a kind of perfected community. At the end of this vision, chapter 47, verse 13, through to the end of the chapter, Ezekiel's given a kind of eagle-eyed view of the whole restored land of Israel. Now, here's what you need to bear in mind. Ezekiel's original audience was made up of two tribes. God's judgment was so severe that he almost wiped out the whole nation. He destroyed the other 10 tribes completely, and there's probably around about 4,000 of them at this time. Tiny. And they were from the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. But what Ezekiel sees in this vision is a restored people of God. All the tribes of Israel restored, and they're all living in the land. People from every tribe, and, and right at the center of the land is this great city on top of this very high mountain. And right at the center of the city is the temple that Ezekiel has been shown around. God's sanctuary, his presence, right in the middle in the community of God's people. This is not some individual restoration. This is people, a, a new humanity united as one with God in the middle, middle. And look at that amazing final verse of Ezekiel. Remember, what's Ezekiel about? Will God be with his people? The name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. In Hebrew, Yahweh Shema. Will God be with his people? Yahweh Shema. The Lord is there and he will be with his people. And for those exiles isolated and alone by the banks of the river Kibar, how they must have held on to this promise. What does it mean for us today? All the prophets, all the Old Testament is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And it all points towards him. That's what Jesus tells us in Luke 24. And so I want to look at how does this vision, how do we see this fulfilled in the church? And I've been saying that this temple was something that would not 
be fulfilled in a literal way. It's symbolic language to convey to them the truth that, that God's going to live among them. God's going to restore them. God's going to give them the abundance of life. And I've been hammering home that point because the fulfillment, or sorry, the beginning of the fulfillment of this vision came not with a building, but with a person. Jesus is, of course, the perfect temple, isn't he? Because who is Jesus? He is God with us. God literally come down to dwell with humanity. That's why the Apostle John says of Jesus in, in John 1.14 that the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And listen to this. We have seen his glory. Ezekiel 33, the glory came back. And what was the purpose of Jesus coming? To restore us. Not, not just Israel, but to restore the world. It began with Israel, but it went out to all the nations. He came to make forgiveness possible for all the wrong that we have done. How does he do that? By becoming our sacrifice. All those Old Testament sacrifices, all that temple worship, it was to point forward to what Jesus was going to achieve. He is the one who steps in our place. He is the one who takes God's anger for our sin. Not just so that we can be forgiven, which is great, but so that we can be brought into God's presence. And so if you trust Jesus, the promise is that your sin is dealt with. And that God now, by his Holy Spirit, will live in you. What is the temple in the New Testament? It's the people of God. We are the temple today. This is what it was all pointing towards. God living in us by his Holy Spirit. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In him we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is with us. And you see how incredible that is. That means that God will never leave you. God will be working through you to change you. Jesus is, is not absent. He's not distant. He's not far away, but he is with you now. You, you always have his ear. You don't have to go through a priest or a sacrifice because he is the priest. He is the sacrifice. We are permanently connected to God. And do you notice the communal language? Remember, Ezekiel's vision was about a community we are being built together as God's temple. How do I know that's happened to me? How do I know I've got God living in me? I mean, maybe I don't feel that different. Here's how you know. Look back at chapter 43, verse 11. Sorry, chapter 43, verse 10. What's the perfection of this temple meant to instill in, in the hearers? Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider its perfection. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple. The perfection of this temple, all its measurements, was, was designed to show the imperfection of Israel. The failure, the sin of humanity. In other words, God's perfect holiness was there to show up our profound flaws. So here's how you know of God's residing in you. You are very conscious and aware and ashamed that you are a sinful person. 
Not only that, but verse 11 talks about this desire to obey God's laws and to walk in his statutes. Shame and a desire to obey him. Those are the hallmarks of having God dwell in you. Ah, but there's more to it than that. Because in chapter 47, we have this abundant life, don't we, flowing out of the temple. A great life-giving river flowing out of God's temple. You know, we've been studying John's gospel in the, the morning. The apostle John loved Ezekiel. As he sat down to, to write his gospel um, to, to show us the, the great truths of who Jesus is so we could have life, undoubtedly he would have had his Ezekiel scroll open in front of him. Because John picks up on this in John chapter 4. He picks up on it to describe Ezekiel 47, or Jesus does, but John records it for us, to describe what it's like to have his Holy Spirit. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Jesus is there. He sits with a well, a woman, uh, sits at a well with a woman that no one would go near because of her um, sexually promiscuous lifestyle. She was this complete social outcast, and yet Jesus speaks to her. In fact, they, they have this conversation about the temple and, and where it is that people should worship. And Jesus, knowing that she is searching for worshiping God and for satisfaction and meaning in life, looks at the well that, that's in front of him and says to her, whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And later on in, in John's gospel, just to make it clear for us, Jesus calls this living water the Holy Spirit. And he's saying to her, if you come to me, I, I will give you God's Spirit. He looks into the darkest recesses of her soul and sees all that she does. And, and, she say, and he says to her, I will give you God's Spirit. And you won't be thirsting after satisfaction anywhere else because living in you will be the source of all joy and all life. You'll get me. You'll get God himself, the one our hearts are made for. And so when you know God, when, when you're in God's presence, when you have God's spirit, it's about having life to its full. There's just this feeling of completion and knowing him like, like this is where I'm meant to be. And you become so enamored with Christ that you see that you just want more of him. So aware of his sufficiency. And everything else in this world is like a saltwater dreg in comparison to having the fountain of living water in you. And when we go out as God's temple to the world then, we go out with the power and the, the life of God's spirit to a world that is thirsty and alienated from him. See, this is it. This is what, the greatest thing about being a Christian is not forgiveness or, 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 or grace or, or the promise of heaven. It, it's, it's Jesus. It's having him. Do you know, it's like... Um, it's like a, a child who has a, a good relationship with their father. Fin, Finley's too young for this at the moment, but when, you, know, you can imagine the father going away on a business trip and they come back with a gift. And the child's not excited to get the gift, but they're excited to, to be with their dad. 
to see him. And there are many good gifts that God has given us in this world, but it's nothing compared to having him. That's what this vision's about. It's about having God. And that's what we can have now when we come to Christ. But finally, all of this is pointing forward to the end of time where this vision is fully realized in the future. The process of restoration begins now, but it will not be complete until we're with him. Why do we long for the perfect world? It's because that's what we're made for. But it's not here. And it never will be until Jesus comes back. And so therefore, if you are a follower of Jesus tonight, you are an exile. This is not your home. We are waiting for the promised land. We are waiting for something infinitely more glorious and perfect. Like the the exiles that Ezekiel spoke to, we are still waiting for the full presence of God. And, And some of us maybe feel that more acutely than others, with loved ones dying, with old age affecting our body, with disease, with the heartache and the pain of broken relationships with mental anxiety and depression, with just feeling wearied and battered by the stresses and troubles of life. You feel it. You feel like an exile. Every day when you battle with sin, knowing that we are forgiven and yet acutely aware of how wicked we really are and how we long for that sin to be away for good. We're not there yet. And even though you know Christ, you you want more. Because this restoration will only come when we are with God fully in his glory. And that's where Ezekiel's vision is pointing us toward. Again, the Apostle John. Turn forward to Revelation 21. Like I said, John loves Ezekiel. I actually think Ezekiel is probably one of the most important Old Testament books along with Exodus to understanding what John writes. Revelation 21, verse 10. Now, remember Ezekiel's vision, okay? And, and see how John picks up on this language as, as he has a vision of the new creation, of what's going to happen at the end of time. Uh, he, he wants to use Ezekiel's language so that we're aware that this is the same thing. But John writes differently because John has seen this now, this same reality that Ezekiel saw through the lens of Christ. And so the way he describes its symbolism is different. Look at verse 10 of chapter 21. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. See, similar to Ezekiel, but you see the differences? 
This time it's not just the 12 tribes of Israel, it's the the names of the 12 apostles. It's the foundation. It's the, the New Testament church that has been brought into this great heavenly city. But look down at verse 22. This is the biggest difference that the lens of Jesus provides to this vision. Do you see it in verse 22? I did not see a temple in the city. Why? Because Jesus is, of course, the temple. Jesus is God with us. And we will be in the presence of a person, not a building. And we will see him in his fullness. Verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. But those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. Listen to this. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Did you see what else John brought into the vision? The nations of the world, the community of God. Myriads upon myriads of people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be with God, free together from sin. Nothing that is unclean or detestable or false, all that is wrong with us will be gone. No selfishness, no no greed, no adultery, no idolatry, no gossip, no anger, no malice, no no feelings of isolation and, and loneliness. Just a perfected, Love and compassion and kindness. No hurt or heartache as God himself will wipe away all the tears and death will be no more. Because an abundance of life flows from the presence of Jesus. Our bodies will be fixed and restored. Be a new creation. A world that, as C.S. Lewis says, a world that's not less real but more real than this one, if that makes sense. With trees and rivers and mountains and animals. But the most amazing thing about all of this, of course, is not what's there, but who's there. God will be there. And we'll get to see him at last. My savior, the one who bled and died for me, the one who loves me more than anyone ever could, the one who took me as an object of wrath and made me a child of God, my King and my Savior. I get to see Him face to face. 
And he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's joy. And then this wretched sinner, according to this passage, will reign with Jesus in joy unspeakable. So paradise, utopia, perfection. It can all be summed up in four words. The Lord is there. Yahweh Shema, the Lord is there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great vision that Ezekiel had, that John had. Vision of how your plan to fix this world that we have ruined and broken with our sin will come to fruition. Thank you, God, that we know the end of the story. So we are no need to be surprised or thrown off guard with whatever life may throw at us because this is what's going to happen to us at the end. Thank you that right now we are connected to you, Jesus, so we, we can speak to you like, like we're doing just now, knowing that it's not empty because we have your spirit and we are your temple and you are our sacrifice, you are our priest, and so our prayers always come to your throne, O oh God. Thank you that we have life in its fullest now because a full life is a life that's connected to you, Jesus. And thank you that one day, for all eternity, there will be a great number of people, too great to even count, that will be gathered around your throne and they will be from all the nations of the world and they will worship you and they will be free from any sin, from all its effects and from death and its horror and all evil and they will just be with you. And that is perfection. Help us to always look forward to that day because we are exiles and that's our home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.